Genevieve Lang with you for Pinchgut Opera and another pre-opera talk and I'm delighted to have not only artistic director of the company Aaron Helliard but director popping his cherry with this one Mitchell Butel and they're going to lift the lid on what you can expect from Cavalli's The Loves of Apollo and Daphne. Erin I want to ask you first who was Cavalli and why is he important? Cavalli is one of my favourite composers, which is kind of an odd, uh, odd thing to say if you know opera. But Cavalli is really important. He was basically the first opera composer. Um, we have Monteverdi, of course, who invented the genre in about 1600. But he, he wrote Orfeo for princes and kings because at that stage it was very expensive. But in the 1630s, uh, opera became public. And so anyone um, could buy a ticket. And Cavalli, who was at that stage a pupil of Monteverdi and working actually at San Marco, uh, he uh, threw his hat in with this new venture and wholeheartedly uh, adopted uh, the mantle of opera composer. And actually, where this opera was premiered was the very first public opera house in the world, the Teatro di San Cassiano. And he was quite a savvy businessman, as I understand, too, Absolutely. because he, he worked in the church, playing organ and that sort of thing all around Venice, but um, actually made financial investment in that first theatre, didn't he? I think we forget that opera was a commercial venture, first and foremost. It wasn't done for sort of art's sake. Um, they realised that there was this great expressive potential, great entertainment value in this new genre, and a whole bunch of uh, Venetian families just went, hey, let's make some money out of this, and Cavalli uh, leapt on board as well. Um, more operas of Cavalli were produced in Venice in the 1640s and 50s than any other composer, so he was enormously successful. And he's probably my favourite composer in a way because... He works on the stage. It's very hard. I don't find listening to Cavalli a very enjoyable experience, just at home. Oh, interesting. I think you have to come into the theatre to realise what a great genius he was because every single word receives this unique musical inflection. Um, and unless you know Italian really well and you have enormous powers of imagination, listening to him on Spotify can be a bit unedifying. I, I mean, I have to say I find the same with composers like Gluck and Wagner as well. I think they work only in the theatre. Mm. And Cavalli is one of those as well. So, Erin, I've heard you describe um, Francesco Cavalli as a creature of the theatre, and we're joined by a creature of the theatre in the form of first-time opera director, this time round, Mitchell Butel. Mitchell, what's it been like tackling the form? How is it the same and how is it different to directing straight theatre? Yeah, wow. It's It's been an art of privilege and education, I have to say, and... and like even hearing Erin talk now, it's it's wonderful. It just and it's I, I do agree with you that, that I think it it works best when it's performed and it's happening in front of you. For me, it's like a play with music, right? As as Erin says, it's not like a Puccini or a Verdi where it's like, wow, here's my big beard. It's it's very kind of genuinely interactive between the singer and and Erin and the musicians because there's so much recitative and there's so much like let me just it's jazz like it's so it's very exciting to me and also it depends on the vibe of what's happening between the singers and the musicians at any point in time so I find that deeply exciting um my kind of opera background I performed in a few for Opera Australia that you know some um, Gilbert Sullivan and Orpheus and and I've directed Porgy and Bess and Candide but they're very kind of epic and kind of um you know, very structured, as opposed to this, which which I think is much more um, free form in a way, and much more radical ultimately. So I'm, ha I'm having the time of my life. But uh, 
And it's, you know, as Aaron said, we think of opera as a highbrow form, but I consider myself primarily a pretty lowbrow artist. <laughs> so uh, it's, uh, it's a, I feel like it's a good meeting of, meeting of people uh, on this particular one. And it's, it's in the room, it's a complete joy watching these incredible singers kind of bend and stretch and, and uh, improvise. It, it, particularly ornamentally, like I just am in awe of the ornaments and condensers that they do, which, which help um, magnify emotionally what's going on. Now, one of the philosophies of Pinchgut Opera has always been to put the music at the heart of the entire production. There's a there's a very definite acknowledgement of the importance of sets, of costumes, of direction, of lighting, of staging, and that sort of thing. But music at the heart. How have you approached that mandate, if you like? Yeah. Well, certainly, I think it needs to be led by by Aaron and the musicians in terms of the kind of the, the tempi and the form, and, and that's super important. But also, I mean, scenically, also, uh, you know, as as you know, the Pinchcott Opera is very visible during the performance, and uh, in our particular version of this tale that's told in a forest, essentially, we're sitting in the modern metropolitan park, and. Up, spoiler for you, but the orchestra, in a sense, will be the little river, the little bar, the little uh, harbour into which all the love is poured. So uh, we're going to represent the the musicians scenically as you know agents of the water, of the murmuring brooks. <laughs> so uh, come along and check that out. So they'll be both you know orally very present, but visibly very present as well. Now, one of the complexities of this opera is that there are twenty roles sung by only six singers. Um, so Erin, I wanted to ask you first, from a musical perspective, how do you, uh, is there discernment or dis can you distinguish musically between the characters on stage if you've got, say, someone singing Daphne and Aurora, for instance? Yeah, that's a great question. So, <clears throat> so Venetian opera is really unusual in that uh, when we look at the list, the cast lists, they look enormous, you know, 30 characters sometimes. I mean, some of the Chesty operas, which is Kalali's contemporary, almost 50. And I think in the 20th century, when people started looking at Venetian opera, they went, they must have had huge, you know, personnel. But actually, it was only sort of after World War II that we did some scholarship and realised that actually, just like in Shakespeare's Globe, or indeed most spoken word theatres in England and France, um, characters doubled the roles and it was, so it was much more economic and so we applied that to Cavalli and the great thing for a company like Pinchgut which um, doesn't have large budgets um, it means we can put on these shows but it does put quite a large um, burden of interpretation on our performers and the virtuosity that the singers bring to these doublings is quite extraordinary. I mean, Mitchell is amazing at drawing out these different characters as well. And so the performers then must have been extraordinary and now I think our audiences will really enjoy the, the, the changes in, in character. That being said, 17th century voice, writing for the voice is really interesting because what we notice is whenever the characters are emotional, they tend to sing higher. Oh. But when they're... Same thing happens to me. Well, exactly. <laughs> I mean, and in a similar way, um, you know, I mean, it's the sort of old trope of as you get excited, your voice gets higher. Um, and so you notice that not only do all the voice types have enormous ranges, so you notice if we talked about this in the Monteverdi Vespers, <laughs> the singers have like a two-octave range. 
And that, that changes in the 18th and the 19th century to much narrower range. So they obviously had, they were much more like, yeah, singing actors, because I'm sure some of it wasn't all sung. Mm. It was somehow spoken or sung spoken. There is a distinction between the singers um, in terms of their emotional status, but as sort of musical types, that's not quite yet solidified in a sort of 19th century way or an 18th century way. But that being said, I mean, it's an, an extraordinary piece. It's funny, people have been saying, well, it's so complicated, but actually I find it's not so complicated now that we're in rehearsal. But maybe that's, again, what I goes back to my point, that once you see this on stage, yes. once you see the people enacting it and singing it, it actually, you can follow the, the, these, these often quite bizarre plots um, quite, quite fluently. For me, as I was trying to sort of mine my way through the synopsis, and I often get lost in synopses, let's face it. Me too. <laughs> <It doesn't laughs> and I run a Baroque opera company. <laughs> <laughs> but I did it with the help of visuals. I had a, a yeah. page, sort of like a, a, an image um, attached to each of the characters. And as you say, mm. once you sort of see it yep. in visual form, it becomes much more streamlined and straightforward. Um, Mitchell, I wanted to ask you the question from a dramatic point of view, um, with the with the duplication or, or, or singers taking multiple roles, how do you help an audience discern which character is on stage at what point? Like, do we look at the costume or do we look at the singer or do we look at their mannerisms? What I think techniques it's do you use? Super important, and it was important for the for the singers too. I think when they were learning it, um, particularly with Max Riegel, who's playing four characters too differentiating in a way to kinesthetically like how do I learn this how does my brain yeah. box these four characters s separately so so super important to delineate that so I, I think um apart from that too there, there is there is a resonance from the audience going I know that's the same guy playing four characters the a it's virtuosically kind of appealing but but b there's resonances that that pour from that one person playing the four characters in terms of particularly with Max they're really four characters who define or come at love in very different ways. Or who, you know, he plays Cirilla, the old lady who says, you know, I'm free and poverty is wonderful. And whereas Apollo is about kind of conquest and, and new love, Chefalo is kind of your dramatic, um, I'm calling him the kind of, you know, the, the Antonio Banderas. <laughs> I have lots of movie references Swarthy. for them. It's yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, and, and Titone is, you know, is, is, is the older character who's lost love, really. But, but in this world, because we've set it in a modern kind of metropolis, we, we went, who, are the, who would these characters be in the park? Like, it's a Richard Scarry book almost. Like, who's in the park today? <laughs> yeah, yeah. And that... That kind of opened up a lot of possibility for us, both scenically, but I think character-wise as well. Like, who are the denizens of this kind of world? So, uh, in this particular world, Apollo, who is, you know, textually very kind of arrogant and self-involved, and like, who's that person in a modern park? And so he's a fitness trainer of some description, and his other characters have various kind of uh, tropes. Um, which are kind of doors for an audience to go, oh yeah, I get who this person is. And then hopefully within that, the beauty of the text and actually the kind of emotional depth of it is, is revealed also once, once you kind of have a kind of comic kind of entry point. So that's, that's the hope. So uh, hopefully we've, we've done a good job. And, and I must say, Mel Yurtz, our amazing costume designer, and Jeremy Allen, our great set designer, have really brokered that concept beautifully. So that I think, even if you didn't understand Italian, if the, if the um, surtitles 
breakdown, as I believe they did in Melbourne, <laughs> particular company last week. Um, uh, I think you'll be right. Like, I think you can still enjoy this musically and and um, visually with, without a sense of that. But I think that the confluence of all those things will be really intoxicating. I haven't had the um, pleasure of talking to many directors, I'll, I'll confess. But one question that always comes to my mind, especially when you're taking such an old work or as in the case of like Puccini and Verdi, which have been so frequently staged, how do you come, how do you arrive at a decision about where it's set? Because this production, as you've said, is in a metropolitan park mm. sort of thing. It could be Hyde Park in Sydney or New York mm. or, or wherever. It, what, talk, talk to me about that process. I think, I think we, particularly with opera, but with, with, with plays as well, I think you have to approach it from the, from the place of where am, where am I at? Where are my colleagues? Where, am I, where is my world at at the moment as well? Uh, not to kind of, you know, twist or subvert anything to, so it loses its, its original meaning. I think you still have to honour the integrity of what something was. But I think, what does the world at this point in history need to see now or to, need to get from this work? The notion for me of people gathering again in a public space to fall in love, to talk about love, to fall out of love... I was like, it's a very important thing at the moment because we all had to reframe who we were and how we connected to, to each other. So that, for me, was the place that I began like, okay, in the context of 2021, what does this work, how could this work kind of affect people emotionally? So therefore I went, oh, so what happened in 2020? We're all, we're all going to parks because that's where we could exercise at the end of the day and like you'd get out of off your stupid Zoom meeting and go, thank God, I have some air and there's some trees and some birds. And and I tried to, once we aligned that with the original text, I went, yeah, yeah, this this kind of holds. So, But, of course, I kind of tested it with Erin and, and um, the rest of the Pinchcut team to go, is this crazy? So, Because also I, 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 I'm not the kind of director who wants to go, this is my vision, everybody has to get on board my... Uh, Apollo yeah, chariot. Yeah, you, you wouldn't so. be a good fit for pinch cut if you were, let me tell you. Yeah, no. So I, I think that's really important just to, to sound it out with people and, and um, if that is the vibe. And I was pretty pretty clear to the gang. I mean, I think that's where we want to head with it. So, yeah, I think... Um, so really, from what you're experiencing now helps define the way in which you'll approach the work while hopefully honouring what the original intent was as well. Which leads beautifully to my next question because in a sort of... Um, post-Me Too world, post-Truth world, the world we are in now, when you try and translate an opera from 400 years ago into the modern day, or even more recently, some elements can be problematic. Mm. Um, and in particular, I'm thinking in this one of Daphne's transformation mm -hmm. into a tree and the reasons behind it. So mm. without giving away too much, because we shouldn't give away everything, mm. people are listening to this on their way to the theatre, yeah. um, how do you tackle things like that that was for me the biggest question mm. of of the piece um and it's so interesting in terms of i mean anna goldsworthy's fabulous article in the was it in the monthly a while ago about when at what point do we stop going oh all these women need to be murdered or raped or you know um put down in opera like and it's like oh my god and then sydney chamber opera recently did that future remains which which um which looked at that similarly so yeah like in in this, a woman has to, you know, transform herself because she is rejecting the desire of a particular man. But it, we've, we haven't changed the text at all, but I think in our production we've given Daphne a level of agency and, and kind of choice and 
a pathway to self-actualization rather than um, entrapment as a result of someone's you know desire so you know there's still a there might still be a tree kind of motif <laughs> happening in there but we think it's more hopefully the emphasis in this one it's more a choice a tree change rather, <laughs> rather than oh i must be um you know transformed because of someone else's problem that's 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 the hope and and uh yeah Hopefully that, I, I think that's, that's what we want audiences to take from it as well. Yeah. Mm. And Erin, in choosing the work, um, when you read Libretti uh, and, and sort of find these problematic issues, do mm. you just, it, does that form part of your consideration about whether to stage it or do you think, oh, we'll just get a really clever director who can manage that <laughs> problem for us? <laughs> <laughs> well, look, it, you know, yes, that article by Anna was, was great and, and there's been many thoughtful pieces about... Um, the role of women in opera and how we and, and our duty as, as contemporaries to deal with it and um, I'm really aware of it uh, it's interesting Genevieve choosing this opera has an interesting story which I'll just yeah, digress please, and say talk ask. briefly about so originally we had to recalibrate our entire 21 2021 20, season to deal with the health restrictions that were in place but also the international travel ban so we had some wonderful pinch gut favourites and some new people coming over this year and we had to cancel it all. Mm. And at that stage, uh, my board said, well, look, we have to we have to rethink the season in light of what restrictions we have. And at that stage, it was five singers in a, on stage at any one point was allowed because we know now that COVID-19 can be spread through aerosols and singing and so forth. Uh, so I was looking desperately for an opera that only had five people on stage <laughs> any one time. And um, a long-time colleague and collaborator is Magnus Tessing Schneider. And he's a colleague of mine. He um, works at the University of Stockholm. And his specialty is the doublings of characters in Venetian opera. Mm -hmm. And he wrote a wonderful article called The Poet and the Nun about this particular opera um, in which he argues for this very multi-textual, very rich interpretation of the opera through Ovid's metamorphosis and also its contemporary meanings for Venetians, which is not very far from what Mitchell's just described about self-agency for the female character of, of, uh, of Daphne. Um, in the Venetian context, she was probably a nun, or the idea that she would sort of take her way, herself mm. away from society. Yep. Um, of course, we're not doing that reading in this one, but the fact that it, it lends itself to so many readings just shows how rich and fecund the work itself is. He said, there's this wonderful piece. It's called The Loves of Apollo and Daphne. It's kind of a dreamy world. It's almost about social distancing because of the, the different relationships the characters have with love. Hmm. Um, and you've only got five people on stage at any one time. And we looked at that point. We talked to Mitchell. We talked to other people. And we realised that we could cast it with wonderful Australians, which is um, what we have done. So that, that's the sort of background to it. But just to go back to your earlier question, I don't, I don't want to shy away from those questions. Um, the, the, the wonderful thing I should say that I love about early 17th century opera is it has an extraordinarily strong female characters. In this show, actually, you know, Buzanello, who wrote the libretto, Apollo's kind of dumb. I mean, it's really clear that the gods are being poked. For, they're the pretentious, higher-class citizens of Venice and that the audience would have recognised these pretentious people. And you can see it in Buzanella's text. <laughs> Apollo is not this um, god without any um, shame, uh, without any um, fault. In fact, he's kind of a dick. <laughs> Whereas you heard it here first, yeah, folks. But <laughs> this is Buzanella's libretto. It's not something that Mitchell and I are making up. Um, whereas Daphne has enormous interior resources. She, 
she's super happy by herself. She has no problems. And so I think that Mitchell's reading of this, which I think is completely apt and deeply historical, doesn't, it's not a, it's not a forced reading in any way. And I think it takes its deep roots from, from um, the historical you know, truth of this work. Mm. Um, and, and in the text too, he does learn. Like there, there, there yeah. is a notion of him being transformed and changed exactly. by, oh, right, maybe <sighs> this behaviour is not, it's not Face acceptable. Palm. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. But it's no, funny, it like is. I do think there are some works, like I was talking to a colleague recently, like, like The Taming of the Shrew, I reckon, should not be performed anymore. That's my, per- I kind of go, that play, brilliant as it is, actually has nothing to say yes. anymore because because there is no Petruchio doesn't learn at the end it lit the play literally says in order to be happy ladies yeah. shut up and, find yourself a yeah. yeah and and you know bow to your man and I go even with an all-female cast or an all-female yeah, creative team I kind of go eh I mean Kiss Me Kate's different because it there is it's subverted enough because it's it's knowing and winking but but Tammy Shrek go yeah be gone so there are works, I think, that, that, that um, uh, deserve to be off the canon. <laughs> but this isn't canon, one of them. <laughs> you'll get letters about this, I'm sure. The Taming of the Shrew is a wonderful, and it is a wonderful piece, but, but I kind of go, yeah, it was, and great, but we don't need that anymore. Yeah. Well, it's mm. about choice too, isn't it? Yeah, that's right. You know, you can choose to put it on or choose not to, mm. and I think that's a great choice. It's a, it's a meaningful, um, thoughtful response to that. Mm. But yeah, opera is interesting. I mean, I, I find that, all of the 17th century, particularly in Venice, it's in the 1630s, it, it's really interesting. Public opera actually, even though it was a commercial venture at the very birth of capitalism, um, it was born also out of this very nerdy literary academies. And so Busanello was one of these members of these academies. And they were debating the equality of women. They were debating yeah. women's place in society. They were extremely forward-thinking people. And some of the, like, what I love about these Venetian operas is often the lower class characters, Cirilla, um, also Alpha Cibeo, you know, these, it's like they're drawn with extraordinary care. I mean, Felana, who's the old nymph who never finds love in this, in this opera, actually has the most deepest, most um, deeply felt words of wisdom, you know. And so these Venetians, I mean, there's nothing new under the sun. They, they knew all about mm. this. And so I'm drawn to the 17th century because of those reasons, because there are very strong female characters um, that have a lot of agency, and often the men are sort of just following that, the trail that they leave in the narrative. Um, and, you know, this whole play is based on Ovid's Metamorphoses, which indeed, as Mitchell just says, all the characters undergo these extraordinary changes and metamorphoses. And I think that part of its, of its appeal for Venetians then and part of its appeal for us now. Beautiful. You make it sound so enticing, and I'm sure that everyone listening is going to be quickening their pace towards the recital <laughs> hall for today's performance. Thank you, Erin Hilliard and Mitchell Butel. Thank you so much. <laughs>